Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us as we continue our investigation of Jesus' famous and favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. It must be by design that God has graciously granted us three independent records of the teaching of Jesus which overlap each other in remarkable ways. Now, John's Gospel, of course, is also a record of the teaching of Jesus, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover much of the same material. It's almost as though God is saying to us, whatever you do, don't miss out on the words of Jesus. It's a little disconcerting, then, to find the famous reformer Luther saying these words. Those apostles, he said, who treat oftenest and highest of how faith alone justifies are the best evangelists. Therefore, St. Paul's epistles are more a gospel than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. For these do not set down much more than the works and miracles of Christ. But the grace which we receive through Christ, no one so boldly extols as St. Paul, especially in his letter to the Romans. End of quotation. Did you catch the implications of that remarkable quotation from Luther? He decided that more grace was found in Paul than in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, said Luther, do not set down much more than the works and miracles of Christ. Now, I want to suggest to you that that statement needs careful examination. Is it possible that Luther has created his own dogmatic criterion for, so to speak, fencing off certain books of the Bible and claiming a higher value for them than others? Did you know that Luther also said that the book of James is an epistle of straw with little value, that he found the book of Revelation incomprehensible, but most especially that he thought that there was not much gospel in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke? I want to suggest to you that that is fundamentally wrong and very dangerous for Bible study. According to the records of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they unanimously testify to the fact that Jesus came preaching the gospel. He wasn't just there doing miracles. He was preaching the saving gospel. Jesus, he himself said, came to save what was lost. He came to seek and save the lost. In Luke 8.12, we find Jesus pointing out that the reception of his gospel message of the kingdom, what Luke calls the word of God, what Matthew calls the message of the kingdom, the word of the kingdom, Jesus said that the reception of that message of the kingdom was the very standard by which we would be saved or lost. In Luke 8.12, Jesus points out that the devil is busy trying to get rid of that saving gospel of Jesus so that we would not believe it and be saved. Check that text in Luke 8, verse 12. How then can Luther say that there's not so much gospel in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? How indeed can he maintain that there was less grace in Matthew, Mark, and Luke than there is in the epistles of Paul? If we look at the opening of the ministry of Jesus as recounted for us by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one thing becomes most obvious. Jesus was introduced by a prior figure, namely John the Baptist. In Matthew 3, verse 2, we find John the Baptist coming with a message, heralding a message and saying, 
Repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he then goes on to warn the Pharisees that God is going to bring a day of judgment, at which time the Messiah will bring the wheat into his barn and cast the chaff into unquenchable fire. In other words, with the gospel, John the Baptist puts before us two destinies. Success as a Christian by being ushered into the kingdom of God or rejection by being treated like the chaff which is burned up. That's what is meant by preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. You'll find exactly the same thing at the opening of Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15, Jesus comes with a summons to the public. He's acting there as a town crier, as a herald, not just a preacher in a pulpit, but a herald with a public announcement, a public message. And his first commandment, Jesus' first order given to those who heard him was that they were to repent, as to say to reorientate their whole life and their whole thinking, and believe in the gospel about the kingdom of God. As we trace the term kingdom of God through the gospel of Mark, we find that it very obviously refers to the judgment day, to the day when Christ returns bearing the kingdom, bringing the kingdom into visibility, establishing the kingdom on the earth. Remember the famous prayer, Thy kingdom come. Jesus urges us as his followers to pray that prayer, Thy kingdom come. That means, of course, that the kingdom hasn't come yet. You don't pray for something to come if it's already come. On another occasion, Jesus said, When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom and yourselves being cast out, he was referring there to judgment day, to the day of his second coming. Jesus spoke often of the future coming of the Son of Man in glory and power to sit on his throne of glory. Throne, of course, has to do with the kingdom. Once again, we see the kingdom attached to the second coming of Jesus. In Luke chapter 19, verses 11 and following, a question arose amongst those who were listening to Jesus about when the kingdom of God was going to come. You see, Jesus on that occasion was standing near to Jerusalem, and naturally they supposed that the kingdom would come then, because Jerusalem, as you well know, was the capital, was to be the capital of the kingdom of God. And therefore, as the people saw Jesus in the vicinity of Jerusalem, they asked, Has the time now come for the kingdom of God to appear? Now, Jesus told them a most important parable, which I thoroughly recommend for your careful study. In Luke chapter 19, verses 11 and following, we have the famous parable of the nobleman. The question was, remember, is the time now ripe for the appearance of the kingdom of God in Jerusalem? Because Luke reports that it was because Jesus was close to Jerusalem that they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear. Now, did Jesus set out to tell them, you've completely misunderstood the kingdom, the kingdom has nothing to do with Jerusalem, the kingdom is a kingdom in your heart, it's a spiritual kingdom, an invisible kingdom, an abstract kingdom, it has nothing to do with geography or time and space. Is that the sort of language of Jesus? Well, absolutely not. How could we imagine such a thing? Not for one moment did Jesus say that it was wrong to expect the kingdom to appear in Jerusalem. If he had said that, he would have denied the message of the prophets which he came to confirm. And so once we establish then that in the mind of Jesus the kingdom of God will indeed appear in Jerusalem, 
then we will find our way easily through the rest of this parable. What Jesus says in this famous parable in Luke 19, verses 11 and following, is simply that there's a delay in the timing in regard to the coming of the kingdom. Now, that interval between the time when Jesus was standing near Jerusalem and the ultimate coming of the kingdom in Jerusalem was not clearly spelled out by the scriptures of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And so it was necessary then for the Messiah, for Jesus to explain God's scheme, God's plan, God's timetable. And he did this in the following way. Jesus likened himself to a nobleman, to a king, in other words, who had to depart to his father to obtain the right to rule in the kingdom, to obtain the title to kingship, if you like, and then return to establish the kingdom. Meanwhile, Jesus gave talents to his various followers and told them to do business, so to speak, with that talent in the interim while Jesus was away with the father, obtaining the right to rule, and after that interval he intended to return and to reward his followers for what they'd done with their talents. It was when he returned from heaven, having received the right to rule, that he summoned his enemies before him and said, These enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Luke 19, verse 27. Not for one moment, you'll notice, did Jesus suggest that the people had misunderstood the nature of the kingdom of God, or that they should look only for a kingdom in the heart, or a kingdom in the heavens. By means of a simple story about the nobleman, Jesus made it clear that the kingdom of God would not be publicly inaugurated until he returned from heaven, after having received from the Father his royal authority. At his return, he would exercise his royal power by executing his enemies for refusal to submit to him, and at the same time, his faithful followers were to be rewarded for their productive service while the master had been absent. And Jesus then said that he would put them in charge of urban populations in the kingdom. Luke 19, verse 17. Be in charge of five cities, and so on. Be in charge of ten cities. Now, this parable made perfect sense as a confirmation of what the celebrated Psalm 2 had predicted of the Messiah, the Lord's anointed. According to this psalm, Psalm 2, God has promised to give his Messiah, and I quote, the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Psalm 2, verse 8. The king Messiah was to break them, break the nations, that is, with an iron rod and shatter them like earthenware. Psalm 2, verse 9. In the same psalm, the world rulers whom the Messiah confronted at his return were urged to, quote, do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and destroy you. Psalm 2, verse 12. Now, both the Jews and Jesus recognized in Psalm 2 a forecast, a divine prophecy of the Messiah's conquest of the world at his arrival in power. In Jesus, the Christian community saw, as we read in the book of Revelation, a male child who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Revelation 12, verse 5. Indeed, the challenge to a position of authority over the nations was designed by the risen Jesus to spur the faithful on to the end. We read this in Revelation 2, verse 26, where Jesus promised positions of authority over the nations in cooperation with Jesus himself 
as the ruling Messiah of that future age of the kingdom. Now what do we learn from these important passages of Scripture? Clearly the kingdom of God belongs to the second coming. It was only when the nobleman returned from heaven that he was able to establish his kingdom and authorize his followers to take up their positions as co-rulers in that kingdom. Notice that Jesus had to go away to the Father to receive the right to rule and then return to bring the kingdom into existence. And so the parable clearly describes a situation in which Jesus is not ruling in the kingdom while he's away with the Father. He obtains the right to rule, certainly, in his absence from the world, but it's only on his return from heaven to the earth that Jesus actually inaugurates the kingdom of God here on this earth. It must be clear then that the kingdom of God did not begin at the ascension, as many seem to believe. The parable in Luke 19, verses 11 and following, is crucially important for our understanding about the timing of the kingdom of God. The ascension of Jesus at Pentecost, at the time of Pentecost, of course, means the outpouring of the Spirit coming of the Spirit is not the same as the coming of the kingdom. The Spirit certainly was given at Pentecost, but kingdom belongs to the yet future coming of Christ in glory. We invite you to request our book on the coming kingdom of God by using the telephone number to be given at the end of this program. We'd be happy to send this to you for your own personal Bible study at home. We ask you to check the text that we've been referring to carefully in your own Bible. Meanwhile, join us again as we continue to investigate Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.